Please turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 18. We are going to be looking this morning at Acts 18, verses 1 to 17. And the title of this morning's message is Promises for Trembling Witnesses. Promises for Trembling Witnesses. Our journey through Acts, I hope you'll agree, has been already something of a rich one. Uh, not, not because of, in any way, the quality of the people that have been speaking, uh, but because of the, the sheer richness of God's Word and this amazing book that is given to us, given to the church, to encourage us in our faith, to encourage us in our mission together. Uh, Acts has been quite the journey so far. And you've probably seen it's touched on many different encouragements and themes, but Clearly one overarching theme so far has been the unstoppable progress of the gospel. That the gospel is able to save all manner of people. And we've seen again and again the call of God to his church to together take out this gospel and make Jesus known. And I know from talking with many of you, uh, we've had many home groups uh, around Acts as well. We have been encouraged and we have had our faith stirred by this call to be God's witnesses. But if we're being honest, it's also not easy, is it? It's also a daunting and a difficult thing to actually just talk to people about Jesus in everyday conversations. And so I was thinking this week, what, are the, what would be the most common reasons, the top reasons, why we struggle to tell others about the Savior that we love? And... Um, I know that the internet is full of many rankings. Uh, you, you type in top 10 on Google and you can get the top 10 of everything. Top 10 movies, top 10 books, top 10 football teams, uh, top 10 film stars, top 10 cities, top 10 coffees, all of these things. And so I wondered if you had to rank, not the top 10, but at least the top three reasons why we struggle to share our faith, what would those top three reasons be? Well, it might be... There might be a few things we could add to that list, but I, I think I could pretty much come up with the top three, at least for me, and I wonder if you'd agree, that at number three in, in the leaderboard would be busyness and distraction. Busyness and distraction keep us so often from finding opportunities to tell others about Jesus. And, and uh, I was thinking with these top three as well, the way that God has just kindly spoken into these areas in recent weeks. And Mark, of course, spoke on busyness and distraction from Luke's gospel just a few weeks ago. Uh, number two, I think, would be feeling like we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're saying. We don't know what we're to say or how to begin a gospel conversation. And that's something that God has very kindly helped us with, especially in the last two Sundays in Acts 17. But number one on the leaderboard of reasons why we struggle to tell people about Jesus. And any guesses? Fear, yes. Okay, we're on the same wavelength. Excellent. Yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure most of us, if not all of us, would agree. Fear is the number one thing that stands in the way of us telling others about our Savior. Fear is something that our passage addresses head on this morning. And in fact, more than just address our fears, this passage is like a fire hose. It pours powerful promises of encouragement right into the heart of our fears to extinguish them. I'm not sure, in fact, there's anywhere else in all of, the, all of the scriptures, all of the Bible, that more profoundly addresses our fears in evangelism than this passage. 
So let's read, I'm going to read 18 verses 1 to 17, but then we're going to focus most of our attention on verses 9 and 10. But here we are, Acts 18, reading from verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius, Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, I want to get us to the promises of verses 9 and 10 as quickly as possible. But first of all, I think it would be helpful to probe a little bit into the nature of Paul's fears. Because we might be sat here wondering this morning, did the Apostle Paul even struggle with any fears? And if he did, were they anything like our own fears? I think we're going to be pleasantly surprised that they sound very familiar. But so we're going to do this uh, in two, two parts, in two headings this morning. First of all, we're going to look at Paul's fears, and then we'll get on and see God's promises. First of all, Paul's fears. Here in Acts 18, Paul is making the last major stop on his second missionary journey. He's come from Athens, and he's now in Corinth. And, and I thought to help us understand a little bit of the contrast between these two cities, just imagine hopping on a train and leaving behind you the, the centuries-old red-brick university city of Oxford or Cambridge, and traveling up to somewhere like some modern city like Birmingham or Manchester. And that would catch, capture something of the jarring difference, maybe not quite enough, but something of it, between these two cities of Athens and Corinth. Athens was an ancient, centuries-old city. Everything in Corinth was shiny and new and modern. 
Athens was a tiny place in population, just 10,000 inhabitants. Corinth had about 700,000 residents. Athens was the intellectual center of the, of, of the ancient world, but Corinth was the new flagship commercial center. And while Athens hadn't been an easy place for Paul to witness in, Corinth was on a whole other level. And so it's fair to say that Paul, on his arrival, was feeling pretty overwhelmed and discouraged. Here's how Paul describes his own coming to Corinth later on in um, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 and 3. Here's how he describes it. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. This is the Apostle Paul arriving in Corinth in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This almost doesn't sound like the Paul we think we know, does it? Where's fearless Paul, ready to go anywhere and stand up to anyone, uh, endure every kind of abuse, willing to witness to every kind of person? Well, this, of course, is the real Paul, but we're getting a truer picture of what the real Paul was really like. He could at times be full of faith and fearlessness, but he could also be discouraged and in weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul wasn't a superhero. He was a man, just as we're men and women this morning. He was a Christian just like us. And even he needed the same regular encouragement to get back up again and keep going and keep witnessing. But here's a question. What was it that had specifically caused Paul to be so discouraged and disheartened as he arrived in Corinth? What had so overwhelmed Paul with fear and trembling that in this instance he needed nothing less than a vision from God himself to set him right and keep him speaking. Well, three things I think in particular we can see here. The first of them is what I've called lone ministry. First of all, it's likely that Paul had recently been feeling really alone in his ministry, alone in his witnessing. Uh, he'd really largely been alone ever since he'd had to flee Berea back in chapter 17, leaving his two friends, if you remember, uh, Silas and Timothy there to go on uh, ministering to the new believers and serving and building the church. Paul had to, had to flee alone. He was the center of the attacks coming at them, and so he had to flee. And he traveled on to Athens to wait for them there. But seeing, as we saw last week, how blind and lost the Athenians were, he felt compelled to stand up and witness for Jesus there too, even though he may well have been the only Christian in that entire city. And when finally Silas and Timothy still didn't arrive, and with not a lot of gospel fruit in Athens, Paul felt compelled to move on to Corinth, again arriving in a strange city, a far bigger city, on his own, trying to be a witness for Jesus. The truth is, it is hard to be alone and away from other believers, especially when we're trying to witness for Jesus. All of us need the encouragement and the prayers of other Christians to persevere in our witness. And, and, and though God now in Acts 18 does start to provide Paul with new friends in Priscilla and Aquila, he does finally bring, uh, allow Silas and Timothy to catch up with him and rejoin him, by this point the pressure of lone ministry had likely taken quite a toll on Paul. He was struggling with lone ministry. Secondly, Paul was surely feeling fearful and discouraged by the threat of hostility 
Everywhere Paul had traveled with the gospel, he had met with hostility. And of course, some people where he went, uh, almost everywhere he went, some people welcomed his message, but others hated it. And usually they took out their hate on the messenger. And if anything, the hostility was getting worse, ironically, as more people were becoming Christians. Paul was a little bit like the football, the actual ball in a cup final. Are they still called cup finals? When I was a lad, we talked about the cup final, but... (laughs) Football, okay, well, all right. In a football match. Um, Paul was a bit like the football. Whichever team was winning or losing, Paul was the one getting kicked hard up and down the field. And the more the gospel was winning people to Jesus, the harder the opposition would kick Paul away again. By now, he has been chased out of about half a dozen cities. He's been flogged and imprisoned in Philippi. He's been stoned and left for dead in Lystra. After the prison stay in Philippi, he'd had to flee a riot in Thessalonica, another one in Berea, and then endure mockery and being called a babbler in Athens. And now here in Corinth, he's just been... He starts out again proclaiming Christ in the synagogues amongst his own Jewish people. And verse 6 says, They opposed and reviled him so severely that he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. All of that opposition takes its toll on a person. Uh, Pete and I saw this recently with our our um, new friends, these pastors who have fled Belarus to escape from being imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And we saw in them a deep faith and a settled joy. They were honestly some of the most courageous Christians we've ever met, but their recent experience had clearly shaken them and taken it out of them and wearied them. We can feel the same if we've experienced any degree of hostility for being Christians, whether it's in our families, uh, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, with our friends. We can feel worn down by opposition. Maybe a sarcastic remark about our faith can be enough to silence us. A post on social media making fun of Christians can make us then fearful and hesitant to admit that we're Christians ourselves. Even if we haven't experienced much pushback, Just the fear of what people might say can leave us very on edge, wary of saying or doing anything. I learned this week that in the London home of the famous Victorian writer and historian Thomas Carlyle, apparently it's a tourist hotspot, you can go visit his home, uh, in his house there is a most unusual room tucked away in his attic, an almost soundproof chamber that Carlyle had built there so that the noise of the street could be shut out and so he could work in perfect peace and silence. He liked his peace and quiet. He wanted to concentrate. Uh, But one of his neighbours, however, um, I shouldn't laugh, but just so happens, kept a cockerel. No one wants a neighbour with a cockerel, but certainly not, especially not Thomas Carlyle. And several times in the night and in the early morning, this cockerel gave way to what you might call vigorous self-expression. When Carlyle protested to the owner of the cockerel about the noise, the man pointed out to him, well, the cockerel only crows two or three times in the night. And so surely that couldn't be such a terrible annoyance. Here's what Carlyle replied. He said, but if you only knew what I suffer waiting for that rooster to crow. Even when we're not experiencing opposition for our faith, we can suffer just waiting and worrying 
that the worst is about to happen. Paul, of course, had repeatedly suffered both threat and the actual sting of persecution and hostility. And that had taken its toll on him. It made him fearful, even led him to trembling. Thirdly, and probably most fear-inducing of all, he was now called to witness in a city that was infamous for its worldliness, pride, and immorality. He was entering into a world of pride and immorality. Now, I'm not going to say anything unhelpful this morning with the children in, but suffice it to say that Corinth was the capital city of immoral behavior. Its name had become a byword for the worst kinds of behavior. And to say that someone lived like a Corinthian was actually an insult. Imagine that if we were to say to live like a Bristolian, that was actually an insult to someone. But it was to call someone a Corinthian. It suggested that a person was unashamedly uh, promiscuous in every way. And they were also a deeply arrogant people as well. This was a city full of people proud of their intellect and their wealth and their power and of their culture. That kind of place can be intimidating for even the boldest of Christians. A place that's so diametrically opposed to the message of a God who would send his son to die on a cross for sinners. Yet isn't that very much the kind of place we find ourselves living in today? We live in a culture that in many ways is rapidly becoming a modern-day Corinth. Our culture is increasingly arrogant, increasingly immoral, moving further and further away from even basic biblical standards of morality, standards of what is right and good. In one sense, it's no wonder that we get daunted, that we go silent in our witness, that we can sometimes even be afraid these days to admit we're a Christian. No wonder we even begin to lose hope that the gospel entrusted to us would would sound in any way attractive to anyone who embraces such a different view of the world. As Christians, we can easily become paralyzed by our fears, by all of these different fears and more. But then, at just the right time, as he always does, right into the middle of our fears, God speaks. Right into the heart of Paul's own weakness and trembling, God speaks rejuvenating words of encouragement and hope and promise. We've taken to heart Paul's fears. Now let's take to heart this morning together God's promises to us. The first thing God says to trembling Christian witnesses, this is our second heading by the way, God's promises. The first thing God says to trembling Christian witnesses, even before he gets to the promises, is something that he continually delights to say all throughout the Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Christians actually debate, you could check this out online, they debate how many times phrases like fear not and do not be afraid come up in the Bible. And the reason they debate it is that it's too many times to count. Okay, even their Bible software struggles to, to sort of count up how much and, and, and where to find these things. So fear not is actually the most repeated exhortation in the Bible. The, the, it, it, it's a command, really, and it's the, it's the most repeated command all throughout the Scriptures. Fear not. Here's what's wonderful about this. This means that right from the start, God knows we get afraid. He knows Paul sometimes trembles and that sometimes we do too. And God isn't awkward about it. 
Maybe you've got a friend or a family member who's really awkward about these kind of things, who isn't very good at dealing with other people's emotions, their feelings. You know, when, when you share something like this, I'm a bit nervous today, I'm feeling afraid, and uh, they kind of go overall awkward. Uh, they, they clam up, they don't know what to say. They change the subject, or maybe even they're a little bit critical towards us. God is not like that. God is not like that. He doesn't condemn us for our fears. He isn't awkward about our fears. Nor is he ever lost for words to speak into our fears. And so we can be continually honest and upfront with God about our fears. Sometimes I think we can be, we, we feel guilty about our fears and we don't take them to God. First of all, reminding ourselves Christ has covered all of our sins, even our, even our fears. And we have a God who knows we get fearful and is waiting and ready to help us. He, he doesn't condemn us for these things. He is ready to help us. And so we can be upfront with him. We can say, Lord, I am afraid right now to even tell this person I'm a Christian. I'm nervous to move this conversation in any way towards Jesus. Lord, I have got a lead weight in my stomach or it's churning like a roller coaster just thinking about asking my friend to maybe come read John's gospel with me. And God will say every single time in response, do not be afraid, do not fear. Which is massively reassuring just in itself, especially when you remember who it is that's saying this. As we heard last week, these are the words of the creator and sustainer of all things, the Lord of everyone and everything. When God speaks, when this God speaks, our fears begin to flee. But he doesn't just end there. He then makes three specific promises to Paul that are repeatedly made to all of God's people all throughout the Bible. The Lord promises every Christian three things to help us overcome our fears and to go on speaking. He promises uh, three Ps, his presence, his protection, and his providence. First of all, his presence. I mentioned earlier on that maybe some of Paul's weariness might have been down to his recently witnessing alone. And certainly God is now providing him with some human help, some Christian fellowship. But here's the main thing and the first thing Paul needs to be reminded of to combat any feeling of loneliness in witnessing. He needs to remember he's actually never alone. Verse 9, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. That's another of those promises. It just echoes all throughout the Bible. Words that God has spoken before to, uh, to Moses, Joshua, Jeremiah, and many others. God reminding his people repeatedly, I am with you. And it's a promise given to every one of us here this morning who's a Christian. A promise that Jesus himself gave in the words of the Great Commission. Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So do you ever find yourself feeling alone and far from God? Wondering if God is really with you to help you? Uh, maybe t Is he with me to help me witness to a friend or a colleague? Is he with me to help me face a trial or a difficulty? Is he with me to help me resist a powerful temptation that's right there in front of me? Perhaps we can relate to the story of the, the five-year-old boy. Let's call him Johnny. We haven't got any Johnnies in the room, have we? No. Um, 
this little boy, five-year-old boy Johnny, was in the kitchen with his mum, helping her to cook. And she asked him to go into the understairs cupboard and get her a tin of tomato soup. But Johnny, he's afraid to go in alone. Uh, he says to his mum, it's dark in there and I'm scared. Well, she asked him again and he persisted in refusing. Finally, uh, she said, it's okay, it's okay, Johnny. Jesus will be in there with you. Johnny walked hesitantly to the door and slowly opened it. He peeked inside, saw it was dark, and started to leave again, when all at once an idea came to him. And he looked back into the cupboard, and he said, Jesus, if you're in there, would you pass out to me that tin of tomato soup, please? <laughs> okay, Johnny kind of got the wrong end of the stick, didn't he? But his mum was on the right track. His mum was right to say Jesus would be with there with him in the darkest and most fearful places, even the understairs cupboard. Because Jesus promises plain as day, I am with you always. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the psalmist says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. This is our hope. It's our hope in life. It's our hope in death. Lying on his deathbed, John Wesley's very last words were, the best of all is God is with us. And that's as true when we're witnessing as it is when we're dying. Isaiah 43 verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. God is with us, always. His Spirit dwells within us, wherever we go, to give us grace, to overcome our fears, and to give us words with which to begin to tell someone about Jesus. God's pro God promises us his presence in all things, especially in our witnessing. Secondly, he promises his protection. Verse 10, no one will attack you to harm you, God says to Paul. Now, in one sense, there is something unique about this promise here to Paul. Paul had been physically harmed and attacked in, in many cities before, and he would be physically harmed and attacked in many cities later. But here God is making a special promise of respite for Paul. A promise that no physical harm is going to come to Paul while he stays in Corinth. And that's borne out quite remarkably. We read on, didn't we, in the passage uh, in verses 12 to 17, when Paul gets seized by his Jewish opponents and he gets brought before the, uh, the, the ruler, the judgment seat of Gallio. He's standing trial again for proclaiming a message about Jesus, only for his persecutors to end up being the ones being beaten. And Paul remarkably is set free, completely unharmed. When God promises to protect, he protects even in the most unlikely of circumstances, against all human odds. But what about us? What about you and me? We don't have a promise for God, from God that if we witness for Jesus in Bristol, that no one will lay a finger on us. They might. But God does give us far greater promises of protection, promises that were actually Paul's deeper, deepest source of security as well, wherever he went. Like... The promise of Psalm 139, that our lives and times are in God's hands. Or the promise of John chapter 10, that we will never perish and nothing and no one can snatch us from God's hands. 
or the great storehouse of promises in Romans 8. Romans 8 is just a greedy chapter, isn't it? So full of promises to us that God would work all things for our good because we've been completely justified through the death of his son, that as a result, nothing can ever separate us from his love. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Perhaps you can recall an incident in your life, a time in your life, or just scenarios that happen on a regular basis, where you feel like you're in a somewhat challenging, nerve-wracking situation, but then you realize you're there with someone, a friend, a family member, who is far bigger or stronger, wiser, more resourceful and formidable than you. Uh, maybe someone comes to your mind right now, someone in your life, you're very thankful for them. When we realize that kind of person is with us, guarding us and protecting us, we not only breathe a sigh of relief in those situations, but we also feel a little bit emboldened within ourselves to be courageous because they're with us. And that is true of us wherever we go as Christians, including into every witnessing opportunity. Spurgeon once said, The protection of God should be a constant fountain of comfort to God's people. A constant fountain of comfort because he is with us always, wherever we find ourselves. The Lord himself is our protector and ever-present help in times of trouble. God promises his presence. He promises his protection Finally, he promises his providence. He promises his providence will ensure the outcome. Verse 10, for I have many in this city who are my people. Of all the promises God gives to Paul to keep on witnessing, I want to say this is perhaps the most encouraging, although I could see there could be a good, uh, good kind of battle between the promises because they're all amazing. Uh, but this one, I think, would have done worked a special work in Paul's heart. For God is assuring Paul that his witnessing in Corinth will not be in vain because God already has many in Corinth who, who are his people. Now, what that doesn't mean is that there are already many Christians there because there aren't. And Paul knows this. There's only a few so far. And even if there were, such a reminder that, hey, God, God says to Paul, hey, I've already got a bunch of Christians here. That really isn't much of an encouragement for him to keep evangelizing. For this to be an encouragement to keep witnessing, the many in the city who are my people must be a reference to people who are not yet Christians, but who God has already chosen and predestined to become Christians once they hear the preaching of the good news about Jesus. This final promise then is a clear and powerful statement of God's sovereignty in salvation. It is a promise of both predestination and providence that God has predestined beforehand that many in Corinth and many in Bristol will be saved. He has predestined in eternity past that particular men and women, even in our lives today, will come to faith in Jesus. And he is at work now providentially in human history and in our everyday lives, arranging the means by which those very same people around us will hear the gospel and come to believe. Now, the Bible's teaching about things like predestination and providence, they, they often, I think, get misused and misunderstood. 
These truths are really shared with us for just three reasons, or three main reasons. And none of these reasons are meant to suggest that A, someone can't be reached with the gospel, or B, that none of which, none of, um, none of these promises, these, these, uh, none of the Bible's teaching on this topic is meant to unsettle someone who's already trusting in Jesus. Here's why the Bible talks to us about God's sovereignty, about the way he chooses uh, men and women from before the foundation of the world, how he is sovereignly at work in the world now, saving people through the word. Reason number one, and this is the biggie, he tells us these things to glorify God, to glorify himself and remind us that salvation is all of him and so all glory belongs to him. Second reason the Bible tells us these things is to bring assurance to every Christian because if you are genuinely trusting in Christ today, and it's not about the size of your faith, it's about the size of the Savior. If you're genuinely trusting him, it means he chose you before the foundation of the world and therefore nothing can ever separate you from him. So God's sovereignty is meant to assure Christians, not unsettle us. And reason number three is the purpose of this verse to give Christians the greatest possible confidence in evangelism. J.I. Packer, uh, I think I quoted him in this book last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, but, but again in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he says, so far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God in salvation is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful. And then Spurgeon adds this, he says, Paul was cheered by the good news that God had many chosen and redeemed ones in Corinth whom he must save. I learned from this that the doctrine of God's predestination is no obstacle to labor. If there are so many that will be saved, says one, then why do you preach? That is why we do preach. If there are so many fish to be taken in the net, I will go and catch some of them. Because many are ordained to be caught, I spread my nets with eager expectation. I never could see, he goes on, I never could see why that should repress our zealous efforts. It seems to me to be the very thing that should awaken us to energy that God has a people and that these people shall be brought in. Why, it emboldens me to labor when I remember that his word shall not return void. It shall prosper in the thing whereto he has sent it. Certainly, this encouragement of basically what is guaranteed fruitfulness, it greatly revived Paul in his labors. And so in verse 11, we're told, Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So encouraged was, was Paul by all of these promises of God to him that it, it may be, it seems that he even changed his approach to mission from this time on. For the first time, he puts down roots in this formidable place as well, but he puts down roots in one place and stays on for 18 months to keep witnessing and teaching. And then in the next major city that he'd come to, on his next journey, Ephesus, he'd end up staying there two years to do the very same thing. Whether or not this had ever previously been Paul's problem, I think there can often be a temptation in us to, to feel like the grass is always greener on the other side. In life generally, but especially, specifically, in evangelism, I found myself wondering in the past if maybe I, I would be um, a, better, a better witness. Maybe there'd be more witnessing, witnessing opportunities if I lived on a different street or 
uh, in a different neighborhood, or if I had a different job, or if I lived in a different city. But the reality is God always places us where we are for a reason. Not that we can never or should never or can never move on, but so long as we are where we are, it is never by accident. We're never in the wrong place to tell people about Jesus. And right now, there are undoubtedly people in all of our lives whom God intends to save and will save, people who he has chosen before the world's foundation and has now deliberately, providentially placed into our lives so that he can use even us and our witness as one of the means by which they'll hear about Jesus. Some of them are the very people we feel most nervous and afraid about witnessing to. But God has put them in our lives for this very reason, because he plans to save them. Let that encourage us. God is at work all around us. He's working out his plans working out his plans to seek and save many people here in our city. And he's also lovingly at work in our hearts, as he has been this morning and every day, working to increasingly quieten those fears that I know just cause turmoil in our hearts, quietening our fears day by day by reminding us again and again of his great and precious promises, promises that can give faith even to trembling witnesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we Thank you for entrusting to us a message that is your very power for salvation. A message that has saved us and which is just as able to save others also. Lord, we thank you that there are already in our lives right now those you intend to save and rescue through the gospel message. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that your word and your spirit would give us courage to pass it on. Give us courage and faith, Lord, we pray, to speak more confidently about Jesus just in everyday, ordinary conversations. Lord, we know our fears and weaknesses, and we are thankful to you this morning that that you know them too, that you don't berate us for them. You know how often we tremble, how often we find it hard to speak. But we pray today, Lord, that you would work these promises for trembling witnesses deeper into our hearts, that we would hear you saying to us each and every day, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. I am with you. Lord, we pray that our hearts would grow in faith and boldness. And in all that we do, may you receive the glory. Amen.